Iggy Pop song go? The one that I really like, the one that he did um, his a solo uh, success. Oh yeah, here comes success. Here comes success. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to No Dogs in Space. This is a music history podcast that will, each season, attempt to tell the story of a subgenre in rock music through the stories of the bands that defined that genre, from the most well-known to the more obscure, yet still highly respected, innovators. I'm your co-host, Marcus Parks, and with me is my wife and number one concert-going partner, as well as the only woman to ever successfully merge record collections with me, Carolina Hidalgo. Many have tried. And many have failed. <laughs> and you succeeded. I, I didn't succeed. You succeeded. Well, actually, yeah. I succeeded. <laughs> I, I won the first round of the night. So, on this first season, we're aiming to tell the story of the genre of music that brought the two of us together way back when we first started dating, because this genre holds some of our favorite music ever recorded. This first season is all about... Oh, good. I was afraid we were going to do Nintendo Core. <laughs> What's wrong with that? Nothing. <laughs> oh, you don't want to throw listen. all these notes away. <laughs> you don't want to talk about Anamanaguchi for three hours? Later. Later. <laughs> That's our off time. Well, through the stories of 10 bands plus a few compilation episodes, we hope to paint a portrait of the punk genre and along the way share a lot of the music we love with every single one of you. Because that's the thing, this show is for everybody. For those of you who don't know a lot about punk, welcome. And we hope mm -hmm. you enjoy what you hear, because there's nothing that I love more than introducing someone to something they've never heard. You know what, and I love that too, because there's nothing worse than people making their own thing that they're a fan of, like an exclusive club. I hate it. It's so dumb, and it, I mean, this is for everybody. Yeah. Whoever wants to listen to this stuff, and, and it shouldn't be like a, uh, you, you gotta like it before it was cool, because you know what, <laughs> if you think that way, then you're just not cool, man. <laughs> I've always loved doing that since I was a kid. Just like, hey, did you, have you heard this thing? But not like, uh, have you heard this thing yet? Oh, you haven't heard that? It's more like, have you heard this thing yet? Oh, you haven't heard that? Oh, fucking hard. <laughs> it's, it's just, it's excitement. You know, that's what music's supposed to be. That's It's supposed to be about passion. It's supposed to be about love. And we Vomity. hope. <laughs> that too. We hope to share all that with you guys, you know? For those of you who are hoping we're going to spend most of our time talking about obscure seven-inch releases and debating the subtleties of the Cro-Mags, I mean, we're probably going to cover a lot of familiar ground for you hardcore people. Uh, but we still hope that you might rediscover what it was that made you fall in love with these bands in the first place. Because these are the originators, you know? For those of you who are hardcore, like, these are the bands that you listen to in high school and college, and we hope that maybe you can learn something new about them, and maybe you can look at these bands in a different light. And so, seeing as how we just passed the 50th anniversary of the release of what could arguably be called the first punk record, we figured we would be remiss if we didn't start with Iggy Pop and the Stooges. Oh, what a great choice. It's a wonderful choice, isn't it? Yeah, it's because it's of us. <laughs> we decided that. Well, the Stooges were an American rock and roll band from Ann Arbor, Michigan, who, from 1969 to 1975, recorded and released four incredible albums that helped lay the foundations for what we call punk rock music. Now, as I said, this show is both for people who have never heard of these bands and for those who already know and love them. So, for those of you who have never heard the Stooges, I envy you for the experience you're about yeah. to have. And for those of you who already know them, here's a reminder of just how goddamn good they were from their 1970 album, 
Funhouse. Why am I naked now? <laughs> Highly inappropriate for the setting, Carolina. <laughs> I know. It's weird when that happens. This is our office. We're at work right now. <laughs> but the Stooges, you know, the, their music's so sexy. It's the, they're one of the sexiest bands uh, on earth. And Funhouse, I think, is one of the sexiest albums ever recorded. And it's also one of my favorite albums. It's, but it's very sexy music. It is. Yeah. I'm cold now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that song was TVI, and that, along with all the other music you'll hear on every single episode, will be available on a playlist on my Spotify profile. So if you dig something you hear today and you want to hear more, don't worry, because it will all be waiting for you later. The thing about the Stooges is that they were not the first band to play music in the style of punk prior to the New York and London scenes doing it proper. Here's a sample from 1964, a song called The Witch from Tacoma, Washington's The Sonics. They're good. Yeah, they're fucking amazing. They're good. And they're still good. I saw the Sonics, what, 
two, three years ago, me and uh, Ed Larson, you know, from here at the yeah. Last Podcast Network family, we went out to uh, the Warsaw in Brooklyn and saw them like, a couple years ago, and they still sounded just like that. And they, but they looked like plumbers and lawyers, but they sounded amazing. Wait, which one was the plumber? The singer. Oh, cool. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah they sounded so far, and I think it was the the saxophone player is now like the saxophone player. His like grandson is the guitarist or something. Like the guitarist was. In his twenties, uh, like early twenties. Yeah, you see that a lot with uh, uh, older bands. Not old bands, but older bands. Yeah, like when we saw Patti Smith, her kids were the band. That's right. Oh, that Patti Smith show was so fucking good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we'll see her again later, in the future. Later. Yeah. <laughs> well, just two years after the Sonics released their first record, you also had a bunch of American GIs at the height of the Vietnam War stationed in Germany making weird ass proto punk under the name The Monks. This is Oh How to Do Now. To the monks on a road trip in Texas, yeah. and I thought they were so great. Especially the story of how like they were stationed in Germany during the war. Like that's where they met and yeah. formed the band. Yeah, they were all hanging out on a, an army base in Germany, like during the Vietnam War. They were all soldiers, and they uh, just decided to start making music. And they actually took it. They took the name so seriously because bands would do that back in the day, uh, where when they did live performances, they would dress like. They would dress like monks? They actually shaved their heads. Oh, wow. <laughs> like, they shaved their heads in, like, that weird uh, horseshoe. Uh, the that Friar Tuck monks, thing. The Friar Tuck thing, yes. They shaved their heads. Like, there's a great performance of Oh, How to Do Now, of them doing it on, like, German television in uh, 1966, I think. It's fucking amazing. Their album is so fucking good. And they, they were just, they were there. And then they were gone. Wow, that's so crazy. I mean, I, I, you know, so many awful things happened in the Vietnam War, but I guess silver lining? (laughs) (laughs) I suppose so. We did get, there was some good, but that's the funny thing about the monks is that none of their music has anything to do with the Vietnam War. The song, I think, that uh, also really shows like the the proto-punkness of the monks is I Hate You. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> Actually, let's listen to I Hate You Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah And then later, uh, do Host let, let, Let's just get the whole hate going 
reason to hate someone? <laughs> I hate you because you make me hate you. Oh. <laughs> no, it's fucking amazing as those bands are. Not a lot of people heard those bands back in the 60s. I mean, you did have later on, like, Kurt Cobain cited the Sonics as a big influence. Oh, yeah, and uh, he also cited the uh, Iggy and Stooges as well. Like, he called Raw Power his number one favorite album of all time. I mean, that's, I think, one of the things that uh, everyone's going to find out as we do this entire series and as we do, like, season two and season three. Like, we're going to keep coming back to the Stooges probably more than any other band when we talk about influences. But the thing is about bands like the Sonics and the Monks and all that, people have been playing hard and fast forever. It's just that not many people recorded playing hard and fast. I mean, the problem is, is that, you know, they didn't get recorded, and those that did get recorded weren't heard by a lot of people because nobody outside of a few small labels were willing to take the risk this on is, recording hard and fast. Exactly. This is before the, you know, do-it-yourself kind of what what everyone's going on, what, what's going on with everybody right now in these yeah. days, especially in the last, what, 20, 30 years. Before then, it was just like a couple people who could decide who would have a music career. Yes, exactly. Like you you had to have a money man. You had to have people pressing the records. You had to have people distributing the records. You know, and then you had to get big first regionally. Then you had to get big nationally. And, you know, now these days, like me and you could work on a music project and have it out the door next week and people could hear it instantly. But back then in the 60s, like there was a whole gigantic apparatus that you had to deal with. And now we have SoundCloud rappers. <laughs> I mean, yeah. It worked out. It worked out. Uh, well. Oh, well, it, it, it worked out. <laughs> and you know, like back then, like it wasn't just male groups like the Sonics and the Monks doing this either. I mean, for an example of singing that could easily be considered punk, take a listen to this clip from a song called Egyptian Shumba by an obscure early 60s girl group called The Tammies. Shimmy, 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 shy, I'm in the city. Dancing with you, Egyptian style. Shimmy, 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 shy, I'm in the city. Way down in Egypt, playing the mummies took on the cave. Egyptian shimmy, shimm
Oh, that's a good song. You know, fun fact, none of the members actually named Tammy. <laughs> yeah, none of the crystals are named Crystal either. What? <laughs> what about the Ramones? <laughs> oh, I have some bad news for you. Oh. <laughs> Well, what made the Stooges so special when we're talking about pre-punk bands is that damn near everyone who made up the first punk scenes in New York and London all either actually saw or heard the Stooges and were thereafter forever changed. In other words, it's not too hyperbolic to say that the Stooges were among the most important rock and roll bands to have ever existed, which makes Ron and Scott Ashton, Dave Alexander, James Williamson, and Iggy Pop some of the most culturally influential people of the 20th century. Those guys? <laughs> Those fucking assholes. The guy who would fling his vomit into the crowd <laughs> and shit behind an amp? <laughs> Actually, that checks out. It totally checks yeah, it out. Well, that's not to say the Stooges were born in a vacuum. I mean, they had their influences just like everyone else even though it's well-treaded territory you know they love the beatles they love the rolling stones i mean we don't need to play you guys the beatles and the rolling stones you've heard the fucking rolling stones you've heard the beatles you know they also love the doors they love the who but the one band that really showed them that you could do some real weird shit weird al <laughs> the velvet underground Iggy and the Stooges first heard Velvet Underground, they were like, what is this pussy shit? 
<laughs> True story. Yeah, and then they listen Later, to it again. They realize, again, oh, this is good. And again. This is very again. good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we'll definitely get later here in a little bit as to why that was the Stooges' first reaction. Because <laughs> <laughs> they're what else they were listening to at the time. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the, the Velvet Underground really showed a lot of people uh, that you could do some real weird shit. I think the, the quote, I can't remember who said it. Uh, maybe it was Lester Bangs, but like, you know, not many people bought the Velvet Underground's first record when it came out, but every single person who did started a band. That's right. Their live shows, the, the way they played, the way they lived their lives. I mean, it, it kind of felt like you could just have a fun time doing this. Yeah, such a great time. And their live shows, their early, I mean, the Velvet Underground is such a great story in and of itself. Like one of their first shows was at the, I think, the New York Psychiatrist Association <laughs> dinner, like annual dinner. Like, <laughs> like they somehow got, like I think so Andy the Warhol. Episode booked- of Frasier. <laughs> I think Andy Warhol booked him because he thought it was funny, or it's, I don't know, or maybe it was an art piece. I don't. Know. But the the Velvet Underground, yeah, I mean that's a great story in and of itself. But before we get into what made the Stooges, let's acknowledge our stack of sources for today's show. We had Open Up and Bleed by Paul Trinket. That's an Iggy Pop biography. You had Total Chaos by Jeff Gold. That's a more Stooges-centric biography. The Wild One by Per Nelson. Again, Iggy Pop. Please Kill Me by Legs McNeil and Gillian McCain. That's just the entire punk scene. That's personally my favorite yeah. book on music ever written. If you've never read Please Kill Me, holy fuck. Go read it. Read like, it. Go after you listen to this episode, go read Start Please Kill Me. You will not regret it. And of course. Our last source, which is also the most unreliable source, (laughs) (laughs) Iggy Pop's 1982 biography, I Need More. This is one he wrote with Ann Ware, who he knew from school, and she came to him to start this autobiography because he was like, he he felt like it was time because he was 28. (laughs) (laughs) No, he was in his 30s at that point. Uh And you could kind of tell... With, with all the stories that she wrote down and everything, that he's just kind of walking around in a hotel room, <laughs> well, it, smoking it, a cigarette, just trying to come up with the details. <laughs> very fuzzy. Very fuzzy. Well, it, it it feels like one of those biographies of like, I'm going to set the record straight right now. I'm going to let everybody know what the fuck Jim thinks about everything. Right, yeah. right. <laughs> and then an hour later, it's like, ugh. Should we just go out for food? <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it wanders quite a bit, and it's got a ton of photos in it as well. And there's one photo in particular uh, that is a full nude of Iggy, and yeah. oh, it, it, the hog on Iggy Pop is definitely in major focus. Yes. And the used copy of the book that we got, there's a big old crease on the spine <laughs> on the Iggy Pop cock picture page. <laughs> Someone spent a lot of time with that. We're going to call that well-loved. Okay. Yes. So, without further ado, let's tell the story of one of the messiest, dirtiest, druggiest, hardest, and at times grossest bands in history, the Stooges. All right. Well, it's 1969, okay. Walk across the USA. It's another year for me and you Another year with nothing to do It's another year for me and you Another year with nothing to do Now last year I was 21 
Principal members of the Stooges were brothers Ron and Scott Ashton, Dave Alexander, Iggy Pop, and later, James Williamson. But if there's any name out of the five I just mentioned that sounds familiar to most people, it's Iggy Pop. So let's start with him. Iggy Pop was born James Osterberg Jr. on April 21st, 1947, and is still somehow alive and performing today with what I'll say is an impressive amount of energy for a man his age who spent a good two decades brutally abusing his mind and his body. Oh, he is indestructible. He looks good enough. He looks... <laughs> <laughs> For Good I mean, considering enough. yeah, I mean, considering what he fucking went through of like the abuse he put his body through. I mean, he's like what seventy two, seventy three, seventy two, seventy two, and he definitely looks better than most seventy two year olds I know. Well, he looks great enough. <laughs> uh, if there are two things in this world that quite possibly drove Iggy Pop more than anything else, and this is by his own admission, it's attention and validation. See, although Iggy Pop grew up firmly middle class, his family still lived in a trailer because that's how his family liked it. Well, yeah, and his father was a teacher. He wanted to make sure that Iggy, his only child, went to a good school. Mm -hmm. And they just kind of wanted for nothing and lived in a trailer. Like, Iggy Pop didn't even know that, like, people lived in houses. <laughs> like, he, he was just like, what do you mean your house doesn't move? <laughs> I understand that. Like when I was growing up, uh, like I thought I grew up in such a small community of like 300 people. My classroom size was 12. I thought the big classrooms of like two, 300 kids in a class. I thought that was just in the movies <laughs> until I was like way too old, like junior high. Like, <laughs> But Ann Arbor, Michigan in the early 60s was going through an economic boom, which meant that there were a lot of rich kids around. And young Jim Osterberg was desperate for those rich kids acceptance. Well, I mean, he was always a very intelligent guy. Yeah. And he still is to this day. But as a kid, he he even gave himself the name Atomic Brain. <laughs> to the him, Atomic Brain? To himself. He's the Atomic Brain. Yeah. <laughs> like in the second grade, there's this like really cute story on how he uh, went up to this kid who was pissing in the stall in the bathroom <laughs> and he goes up to him. He's like, hey, do you know how to spell the longest word in the English dictionary? <laughs> You know what word that was? What? anti this is step anti this is step anti this is step anti this is step anti this anti anti this fuck you <laughs> I don't think I said it right either <laughs> 
Uh, as such, while we think of Iggy Pop in the 60s and the 70s as this insane, blood-covered, puking Dionysus, Jim Osterberg wore loafers and slacks, Aww. hung out with the popular kids, even ran for class vice president. Oh, that's sweet. Like, the weirdest that Iggy Pop was in high school is that he would kind of cavort around and talk in a real high-pitched voice. He would. It was a character that he called Hyacinth. Uh, mm-hmm. And when one of his high school friends later saw the Stooges live, like, in the 70s, he was watching it with his arms folding, looked and goes, huh. That's fucking Hyacinth. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like it was the same act that he'd been working on for, since he was in fucking high school. And he used, it was just something they used to do to make the other kids laugh. That's it. Use your weirdness. Always. Yes. Now, really, about the worst thing that happened to Iggy Pop when he was growing up was that Iggy Pop hit puberty earlier than the other boys. And as I said earlier, Iggy Pop had a bit of a hog. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how else to say it. He had a hog. He had a big hog. And the boys in the locker room used to grab it and drag him around the room against his Aww. will. Or, hey, man, fucking stop it. Just let go. It, things used to be so cute in the 50s. <laughs> and now that's abuse. Now that's an intense abuse. Yes. yes. <laughs> now, the real misfits in the Stooges were Ron and Scott Ashton. They moved to Ann Arbor with their mother in 1963 after their father died. I mean, these guys were the ones that had the truly rough life. Ron, in particular, only cared about three things. Mm. Rock and roll. Yeah. The Three Stooges. Cool. And Hitler. What? (laughs) But why? Well, actually, now might be a good time to just go ahead and address the overall fixation that the 70s punk scene in general had with the Nazis. To paraphrase Robert Christgau in a 1972 article he wrote about the punk scene when it was still coming of age, he wrote, concerning their affection for swastikas, quote, None of this looks very good, but none of it is as bad as it looks. Uh, you know what? It makes sense. <laughs> it makes it, sense. It makes sense. Let's explain it a little bit. Well, Mary Heron, who uh, you know wrote for Punk Magazine, mm-hmm. and also actually wrote and directed I Shot Andy Warhol movie. Oh, no shit. Yeah, that was her. Uh, she says, like, in the hippie days, like, styles of dress or symbols were used unironically. You know, like the peace sign, the love sign. Right. Like, what you wore and was what you represented what you what you felt yeah it was all face value shit and then she goes and it also meant nothing but anyways that's gonna be a (laughs) conversation that's a conversation for later on in the show (laughs) and and then she goes on to say like and suddenly a movement comes along with no transition nobody said anything and they're using swastikas and it's not about that it's a costume and an assault it's about gesture and shock tactic you couldn't write an analysis of it you just didn't know what the fuck was going on it was all happening so fast Yeah, I mean, back then, Nazi imagery was nothing more than another way to freak out the older generation. The punks took the worst thing in the world, which was Nazis. Actually, which is Nazis. We're just going to go ahead and say is still. I mean, no no one's topped the Nazis yet. Oh, well, you know, we shouldn't challenge them. (laughs) But can you say it in the way I like it when you say it? The, oh, Nazis. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Thank you. Well, the punks used that imagery to make people feel weird and uncomfortable. It wasn't about ideology at all. I mean, for fuck's sake, Joey Ramone's real name was Jeff Hyman. He was Jewish. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like there were a ton of people in the punk scene that were Jewish. Lou Reed. 
Jewish. I mean, like a ton of these guys. Do a Hanukkah song? <laughs> but I mean, really, to draw a parallel to today's world, it's kind of like what 4chan was for some people way in the beginning, way back when 4chan first started. You know, it's like you say fucked up shit to get a reaction. You don't right. actually believe any of it. But unfortunately, as both bands like the Dead Kennedys, as well as many people on 4chan eventually found out, the ironic fun tends to stop when the actual Nazis show up thinking they found like minds. They ruined all the fun. <laughs> Not that just little particular part of fun. It, all of it's ruined. There were a lot of people having fun in Weimar, Germany. <laughs> <laughs> And then the Nazis showed up. <laughs> but back to the Stooges. See, while the Ashtons were still teenagers frowning their way around Ann Arbor, Iggy, a.k.a. Jim, was beginning his career in music, although he didn't start off as a singer. Iggy Pop, like Joey Ramone, started off as a drummer. And Max Weinberg. Of course, well, <laughs> Max Weinberg stayed as a drummer. Max Weinberg was always a drummer. I don't know. I just wanted to say something. <laughs> <laughs> he defined his career by being a drummer. That's cool, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, Pop's first high school band was the Megaton 2, comprised of Iggy and his friend Jim McLaughlin. And it was through his buddy Jim that Iggy started hearing artists like Ray Charles and Chuck Berry. Jumping little record, I want my jockey to play. Roll over Beethoven, I gotta hear it again today. You know my temperature rising, the jukebox blowing a fuse. My heart beating rhythm and my soul keep a singing the blues. I roll over Beethoven, tell Shikowsky the news. I got the rockin' pneumonia, I need a shot of well, another important artist during this time was Dwayne Eddy. Now, Dwayne Eddy. Yeah, I was about to say, who's Dwayne Eddy? <laughs> <laughs> Dwayne, I mean, he's not, his big song is Rebel Rouser. Like, Remember in Forrest uh, Gump when Forrest Gump's running and he's in high school and there's all those rednecks in the truck chasing him around and there's that song playing. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, every, it, that's. Rebel, Rebel Rouser. And that was Dwayne Eddy's big hit. That's what Dwayne Eddy was known for. Dwayne Eddy was known for the twang. And of course, he managed to work twang into every fucking album that he had. <laughs> First one, Have Twangy Guitar Will Travel. And then that was followed by the quote-unquote twangs, the quote-unquote thang. Mm. Then there was the roaring twangies. <sighs> My favorite, One Million Dollars Worth of Twang. <laughs> And finally, the biggest twang of all. I think there's a missed opportunity here. For what? Twang gang. <laughs> he might. I kind of want to see if it, I'm gonna just type in Dwayne Eddie Twang Gang. Yes. Yeah. There was one compilation of Dwayne Eddie uh, songs, Twang Gang, 2001. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it. I knew it. Uh, it's well, it's just Dwayne Eddie and a whole bunch of other like twangy artists, like you know Lee Hazelwood, Sanford Clark, Donnie Owens. Like, yeah, the, all the comprising a twang gang. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yes, the twang gang comprised of all of these men. But yeah, yeah, that they, they took your cue. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, that twang was exceedingly important to the evolution of the Stooges. Here's a song from 1958 called Stalkin' by Dwayne Eddy, which without a doubt influenced the skewed sexiness that the Stooges later came to personify. Lights a cigarette and asks for Dwayne Eddy. <laughs> we got we have a delivery of twang for a Mr. Dwayne Eddy. <laughs> and Quentin Tarantino goes cut. cut. That's not the line. Well, Iggy Pop, he was no misunderstood genius growing up. I mean, his parents remember his parents chose to live in a trailer, two bedroom tw- trailer, and they actually gave up their master bedroom so Iggy would have a dedicated spot to play drums whenever he wanted. And that's a thing that we're going to learn throughout this whole series of the uh, of the Stooges is the fact that Mr. and Mrs. Osterberg are the best people that have ever existed in the world. I, I don't know if I would call them the best people. I would definitely call them the most patient people in the world. They are so patient. <laughs> Well, Iggy found that with the Megaton 2, he finally got the approval of the jocks and the rich kids that he so desperately wanted. And as it usually goes with positive reinforcement, Iggy Pop ran with it. Eventually, the Megaton 2 evolved into a band called the Iguanas, named after what Iggy Pop considered to be, quote, in his words, the coolest animal. Oh, don't tell his bird that. <laughs> don't tell Biggie. Don't tell Biggie Pop. <laughs> <laughs> Go on Instagram. You'll know what we, we, what we mean. We're going to be talking about Biggie Pop a lot in this series. Yeah. <laughs> Once the iguanas were good enough, they, like a lot of bands at the time, started playing frat parties and high school dances. Now, by the time the two of us, me and Carolina, by the time we got to college, frat parties were absolute nightmares of bad music and shitty dudes. Nobody wanted to go to a fucking frat party. I mean, college. that's why we did college radio parties, or at least back (laughs) in my place. Over on 14th and U, if anyone got drunk in Lubbock, Texas between 2002 and 2004, probably got drunk at my place once. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I don't know. Well, the only time we ever had fun at a frat party is that it it was just like me and my friends. You know, you go, you pay the $5, unless you're upperclassmen, you pay $5 to get in, and then you go down in a basement right next to the keg, and you just hang out just with your friends. Yeah. Well, see, we used to have, like, our band used to play. Uh, oh. Hug, yeah, Hugs a Bunch Freeloader. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what was yeah. the name of that? Hugs a Bunch Freeloader. We played one show, and then another show, uh, or another party, me and a few friends started a band called Judo for Menudo. Uh, uh, that was that's the on- a better name. It's a much better name, yeah. And that was that was the only performance where I've ever been the lead singer. Oh, yeah, yeah, really? Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, we had a few So We had Mountains of Coke, Baby, I Love You. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that was probably the best one, where the, it was just... Mounds of Coke, Mounds of Coke, Mounds of Coke. Oh, I love you. And then it just kind of goes like that for about two minutes. Uh, (laughs) But it was super fun. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. (laughs) But back then, like all throughout the 60s, 
you could see absolutely fantastic musicians playing frat parties. Like that shit from Animal House, like Otis Day in the Nights. Oh, yeah. You that happened all the time. I actually saw them play. Otis, Otis Day in the Nights? Yeah. I mean, he had to change his name to Otis Day when it got when Animal House got big. Ah. And they still tour. I mean, he's an older man, but they, I mean, there was like some, they do a lot of toga party theme uh, shows and stuff like that. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. I went, it was like four or five years ago. Oh, Seven, eight years ago. <laughs> ah, what the fuck? What year is this? Well, it, how was it? It was awesome. It was so cool. And everyone was in a toga except me because I didn't know I was going to be there. <laughs> well, for just a small example of what you could hear at a frat party, here's a rare, if rough, recording of Bo Diddley at a fucking frat party at Cornell in Ithaca in 1959. Wow. Actually, that recording, that's not on Spotify. That was like a super small release that came out a few years ago. It's called Spring Week, Bo Diddley Spring Weekend, uh, 1959. The sound quality, especially when like Bo Diddley's singing, is way blown out. But it's like, it's such a beautiful little time capsule. And, yeah. you know, and it's just fun. It's fun to sit around and like kind of pretend like, Oh, yeah, I'm at a frat party right now. <laughs> 1959, this is a lot of fun. <laughs> And Bo Diddley was just one of many bands to play frat parties in the 60s. I mean, the bands that made up the core of the 60s frat rock scene, these were the forebears of the Stooges. These were the guys that came right before. I mean, you had the Kingsmen with Louie Louie. The Stooges covered Louie Louie throughout their entire fucking career. You had Sam the Sham and the Pharaohs with Wooly Bully. Oh, yeah. And one of my favorites, Nobody But Me by the Human Being.
No, no, no. I just want to say no dose. No, that that's one of the um, last podcast backstage songs that we will sing. We're just like we'll start going. No, no. It's just just try it sometime in your house when you're alone. It'll make you happier. I believe you. Yeah. Today, all that kind of music falls under the much cooler name of garage rock. Garage rock sounds much cooler than frat rock. And that's mostly owed to Lenny Kay's excellent 1972 compilation, Nuggets Volume 1, which also played a huge role and influence in the punk scene. And Lenny Kay actually used the term punk rock in the liner notes. I get up in the morning, kick the covers from my bed. The sunlight in my eyes playing tricks with my head. I work like a dog on a job every day. Sonics also cover this song? I think they did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It sounds very familiar. I love that fucking song. I mean, yeah. it's The Strange Loves. It sounds like one of those songs that you hear like late at night on like old FM radio. It's like, ladies and gentlemen, just remember, nighttime is the right time. Here's The Strange Loves on KLBBK. <laughs> I love it when you do that. <laughs> well, admittedly, like a lot of that music, you know, especially songs like Louie Louie, I mean, they sound hopelessly outdated and hokey to a lot of people, especially people in our generation, because we kind of had those songs ruined for us. You know, the 90s, all those songs got put in commercials. They were in every shitty baby boomer nostalgia movie. I mean, they just got such an... (laughs) (laughs) Tell us how you really feel. (laughs) You're going to be hearing a lot about that, all right. But it's, yeah, they were all kind of ruined they just seemed like that's mom and dad's music but now as i've been you know in my mid-30s i've been revisiting a lot of that stuff and you can really hear that that music really was powerful like it was original for the time you know it's fucking great stuff so like listening to all that stuff with new ears and especially like kind of working on this series uh listen to it with new ears and listening to it in the context of the stooges like you can see really how important this shit was oh absolutely especially people of uh who are much older from that time like i mean think about like coming from like waltzes yeah and then and then they start playing louie louie <laughs> and you're like oh i can finally shake my thing yeah because that's the thing is that back then frat rock and garage rock along with bands like the who i mean they were speaking to people in ways that were just more aggressive and honestly sexier than what like the Rolling Stones and the Beatles were doing as influential as they were and as sexy as the Rolling Stones could be they were fucking nothing compared to these frat rock groups (laughs) at least that's how I feel at least these frat rock groups just speak to me in a way that uh, I guess the Rolling Stones 
uh, don't always. Well, yeah, I, I know what you mean. Like, I, I was a very big fan when I was a when I was a kid. I mean, like the Beatles and the, the yeah. Stones. You're growing up and you're 11, 12 years old. And then, like, one band, The Who, like, I didn't know I would like The Who until we got to see them live, like, yeah. what, two, three years ago? And we got to see, like, old Who. Old Who? <laughs> like, but like, still good Who. Yeah, we saw half Who. Like, we said. <laughs> How long can we keep this going? <laughs> but if you go on YouTube and you watch the, the Who from back in the back in the day in the sixties and everything, like they were so badass, like you were fucking amazing. Yes. I mean, it's not a stretch to say that the Stooges would not have existed without the Who. Oh yeah, absolutely. Because like while Iggy was playing frat houses in the University of Michigan, the original guitarist and the bassist from the Stooges, they were on their own journey. When Ron Ashton and Dave Alexander were still in high school, they sold Ron's motorcycle and went to fucking Liverpool. (laughs) (laughs) Going from Ann Arbor, Michigan to Liverpool because they wanted to see this British rock shit firsthand. And naturally, they ended up at the Cavern Club because by the mid-60s, the Cavern Club had already gained a worldwide reputation as the club where the Beatles first made their mark because the Beatles played the Cavern Club 292 times between 1961 and 1963. But it wasn't the Beatles that Ron and Dave saw that night. They were there to see the Who. And then Austin Powers waltzes in, <laughs> and there's a close-up of his glasses and his teeth. Because that's all I can think of right now. I understand. I understand. And that, and that's the thing is that like songs like My Generation, like. They've been used in so many movies and so many commercials. The My Generation has been used in so many commercials that there is an article online from Ad Age magazine about how many commercials My Generation has been in. <laughs> and how many commercials, you know, Behind Blue Eyes and Baba O'Reilly. Like, how many commercials the Who's music has been used in. So these songs just, I don't know, like, it, it's it's They sold hard. so much life insurance. <laughs> And, you know, it, it's really, it's hard to grasp the true impact of this music. And another reason why it's hard to grasp the Who's true impact is because the Who doesn't necessarily translate, because the Who's real contribution didn't fully translate to recordings, because the true brilliance of the Who was in their live performances. That's right. Like I said before, go on YouTube, watch them. Like, they're playing like crazy, all wearing coats that they borrowed from someone's mom. Mm-hmm. Like, they actually like destroying their, all their instruments. Yeah. And then for some reason, there's like smoke coming out. <laughs> and then they just stand there and they, they stare at what they've done and then they walk away. It's so cool. It's so fucking cool. Like, cause I didn't really get into the Who and didn't really uh, see any of this shit until I moved up here to New York City. Uh, I was over at my buddy Ivan's place. Uh, we had been out drinking all night long. I'd stayed over on his couch, like woke up in the morning. He's like, we got to watch something. Kids are all right. And so he puts on the kids are all right. And I'm just sitting there watching it. And, you know, as a drummer myself, just like watch it to be like, holy shit. Wow. This is so fucking good. <laughs> 
I mean, and concerning their live performances, you know, although bassist John Entwistle, I mean, he's pretty much a statue on stage. And Roger Daltrey, lead singer, I mean, it's like a calculated cool boredom, but it's also a very captivating cool boredom. The live power of The Who really came from Keith Moon and Pete Townsend. I mean, watching Keith Moon play drums for the first time is a fucking revelation. I mean, watching Keith Moon play drums, it's like someone threw a couple of drumsticks into a hurricane and they just miraculously start playing these fucking wildly complicating drum fills while making it look like the easiest fucking thing in the world. It's like you watch Keith Moon play and you're like, oh yeah, fucking anybody can play drums. Anybody can do that. Because he looks like he was born to do it. He looks like he was a creature that was genetically engineered to play drums. If it looks easy, that means they're a genius. Exactly. And, you know, and Pete Townsend, besides his windmill style of playing guitar, he was among the first dudes to smash a guitar on stage during a performance, which, again, is now a cliche. But back then, it was both baffling to see and terribly freeing. And it was at one of these shows that Ron Ashton and Dave Alexander were changed forever. I actually want to read this quote from Ron Ashton about this whole experience of them going and seeing The Who as it was transcribed in, as we said, the best book about rock music ever written, Please Kill Me. It was my first experience of total pandemonium. It was just a dog pile of people just trying to grab pieces of Townsend's guitar, and people were scrambling to dive up on stage, and he'd swing the guitar at their heads. The audience weren't cheering. It was more like animal noises, howling. The whole room turned real primitive, like a pack of starving animals that hadn't eaten in a week and somebody throws out a piece of meat. I was afraid. For me, it wasn't fun, but it was mesmerizing. It was like the plane's burning, the ship's sinking, so let's crush each other. Never had I seen people driven so nuts that music could drive people to such dangerous extremes. That's when I realized this is definitely what I want to do. Cool. Nissan, the new Altima. Experience more. Actually, you know, I did read somewhere that Ron and Dave actually did meet the Who. They actually made it? Yes, and and the Rolling Stones. (laughs) Oh, God. Okay, this is a story that was told by Ron Ashton to Gary Henderson. He's also known as the Colonel Galaxy, or simply the Colonel. The Colonel Galaxy, or just Colonel Galaxy? You can call him Colonel Galaxy or the Colonel. (laughs) All right. I want to be called Colonel Galaxy. Well, check out Dark Carnival. (laughs) And so this was a time where Ron and Dave found themselves sitting with Roger Daltrey, Pete Townsend, and Mick Jagger at a bar. God. And they're all sitting there together because they're like, hey, we're Americans. We're cool. We're, we're, we're kind of in a band, yeah, sort of. Yeah. And they sat down and they listened intently to Roger Daltrey talking about their lousy set <laughs> <laughs> and how the sound just sucked. <laughs> and meanwhile, Mick kept moving up his chair and landing like the leg on Ron's foot. Like, get the fuck out of here. Yeah, it wasn't <laughs> until the third time when Ron realized that it wasn't an accident. <laughs> oh, no. Mick Jagger doesn't like me. <laughs> and the guys, I mean, like, Mick Jagger and all of them, they were being dicks to the poor young Ron and Dave. Even laughing at them when they, like, ordered Red Stripe while everyone else was drinking Guinness. Oh, yeah, okay. But still, Dave was intrigued by Bill Wyman, you know, the bassist for the Rolling Stones. Mm-hmm. And after a short conversation, you know, he started thinking, like, bass, huh? 
That sounds cool. Mm. Yeah, bass. Yeah, bass would be pretty good. Because this is around the time when, right before the band formed, the the Stooges forms, like they're all slowly getting together and starting to evolve in their own instrument and getting into their own instruments. Yeah, where they're trying, there's everyone starting to evolve. And it's like Iggy Pop starting to evolve into a singer. You exactly. Know? And, <laughs> Dave Alexander is going to go towards bass. Yeah, it's like they're just all slowly growing these little things that made these guys who the fuck they became. And when Ron and Dave got back to Ann Arbor, they got kicked out of high school for having long hair. Or so they (laughs) or so they say. I mean, I mean, I know back then, like, you know, you people would get turned away from diners and shit for having long hair. They'd get refused service. But you don't get kicked out of high school just for having long hair. Dave was drunk all the time. Yes, he was. Since the age of like 10. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Scott picked a fight with somebody on the first day of school, and then they get kicked out, and everyone's like, I don't know. Long hair, man. Uh, yeah, it must have been the long hair. <laughs> I heard someone say uh, that they got kicked out of school because uh, Ron uh, actually had a bet to see how fast he could get kicked out of school permanently the first day of his senior year. <laughs> <laughs> But it was after these dudes were kicked out of school that they started hanging out at Discount Records. And who should have a job at Discount Records but Iggy Pop. And just because Iggy didn't go to England didn't mean he wasn't putting in the time. And surprisingly, out of all the Stooges, Iggy Pop was by far the most professional. Although that probably says a lot more about the rest of the Stooges (laughs) than it does about Iggy Pop's professionalism. Now, although Iggy was primarily the drummer in the Iguanas, he did occasionally sing. And what we got here, it's available on YouTube, is the only track from the Iguanas, both written and sung by Iggy, back when he was just plain old Jim Osterberg. In other words, this is the first recorded Iggy song, although it was never officially released. It's called Again and Again. fucking good yeah you know and and the lyrics are actually pretty cool too i mean i just want to read like a little bit of the lyrics i mean it's like classic stooges shit like it's uh i walked in step past the old times i would fly in a long field of bleeding death and there was no sound at all and i moved fast to look around and i saw stand beside me one another and the ground steady again and again Wow, that's actually very good. <laughs> All I heard was. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's again and again. It's <laughs> that one thing again and again and again and again. Uh, but yeah, the lyrics are fucking great. I mean, and he wrote that. He was a teenager when he wrote that. Uh, it's super fucking cool. 
But as primitive as again and again was, Iggy was still gathering his influences. When Bob Dylan came to Detroit in 1965, Iggy Pop was there, and this was just after Dylan went electric. See, Bob Dylan going electric was an enormous deal at the time, because before this, Bob Dylan was worshipped in the folk scene, and the folkies were traditionalists who tended to turn their nose up at anything as banal and pedestrian as rock and roll. Oh, no. (laughs) There's a war going on. (laughs) Yeah, that's fucking Vietnam, and these hippies are pissed off about Bob Dylan picking up a different kind of guitar. Oh, it's so good that we have not turned to that kind of pettiness now. (laughs) It's so good that we finally moved past fighting over tiny little things in entertainment and art and have moved on to truly important issues. Exactly. We're this close to Starfleet. I can feel it. Around 1965, Dylan recruited a bunch of musicians, later known as The Band. Fucking love The Band. Band, so good. Go listen to music from The Big Pink. It's fucking great. But when Dylan brought The Band in, he switched things up. See, before, he sounded like this. Come gather around people wherever you roam And admit that the waters around you have grown And accept it that soon you'll be drenched to the bone If your time to you is worth saving Then you better start swimming or you'll sink like a stone For the times they are changing I like that song. I love that song so much. Yeah, I mean, and that's the thing. I still love Folk Dylan. Like, there's so many fucking Mm -hmm. great albums during the Folk Dylan years. But after the addition of electric instruments and a full band, Dylan sounded more like this. Mixing up the medicine, I'm on the pavement Thinking about the government A man in a trench coat, batch out, laid off Says he's got a bad cough, wants to get it paid off Look out, kid, it's something you did God knows when, but you're doing it again You better duck down the alleyway Looking for a new friend A man in a coonskin cap in a pig pen Wants $11 bills, you only got 10 And while that may not sound like a huge difference to most people, because honestly, those two songs follow the exact same structure. It's intro, verse, harmonica. Yeah. (laughs) It's the same shit. And and, you know, and to be fair, he did warn them times were changing. (laughs) (laughs) To be fair. But when Dylan went on stage at Newport Folk Festival with an electric guitar and a whole band, folk fans lost their goddamn mind. <laughs> one one audience member, and this is like the, the famous story, one audience member felt it was such a betrayal that he shouted, Judas! In the middle of the set. <laughs> wow, you, you really got him. <laughs> Way to go, dude. Yeah, yeah. You bought that ticket, right? <laughs> and it only got worse from there. I mean, folkies who seem like they should be a chill and understanding group started showing up to Dylan shows just to boo him because they hated it so much. Oh, gosh. Really? Why would you go and show up? I don't know. Folk, you know, folk fans could really learn a lot from metalheads. 
What? They're the nicest fucking people on earth. Metal fans, metalheads are the nicest fans. Go to any metal show, everyone there is super, super nice. Oh, you're right. R- remember when we went to go see Mayhem? Yeah, everyone was like, excuse me, sorry, pardon. <laughs> but everyone was still having a fucking great time, you know? Like, like, no, no, you were here first. <laughs> but Dylan, at least on stage, looked like he couldn't give less of a fuck as all these folkies and hippies were booing him and yelling Judas and all this shit. And it was this I don't give a shit, I'll do whatever I want attitude that inspired Iggy Pop to later do whatever the fuck he wanted to do on stage. Oh, yeah. No, he was a huge Bob Dylan fan. He'd listen to Bring It All Back Home every day. You know, that's the album where Dylan went half electric on Mm -hmm. that. And he said he listened to it, like, for hours, like a hundred times. Yeah, and that's a fantastic fucking album. That's the album to listen to. But Iggy had one more musical stop to go before he founded the Stooges. See, there was another band in Ann Arbor at the time that was far beyond the Iguanas when it came to musical talent and success. They were known as the Prime Movers. That's a great name. It's a pretty good name. I don't know. I think it sounds very generic. What? <laughs> but it's philosophical. You know, it's like an Aristotle thing. Oh, I know. <laughs> <laughs> have I talked about this? With your philosophy degree? Yeah, yes. You well. may have. We may have had a conversation or two about prime movers. I need to use it somehow. <laughs> well, since Ann Arbor was a small town, the prime movers knew the iguanas. And it was that band that started referring to Jim Osterberg as Iguana, which was eventually shortened to Iggy. That makes sense. <laughs> that was the easiest explanation ever. <laughs> All of these. Every single time we talk about like the names or the, the weird shit that goes on and you know, these people throughout this series, it's all going to be, it sounded cool. <laughs> <laughs> the answer is always going to be, because it sounded cool, man. No dogs in space. It sounded cool. Sounds really cool. <laughs> so, in November of 1965, the original drummer left the Prime Movers, and Iggy Osterberg left the Iguanas to work as the Prime Movers' drumming replacement. Not too long after that, another guy came into contact with the Prime Movers, Ron Ashton. Now, Ron just played bass for a few gigs and was eventually demoted to roadie because he wasn't quite good enough yet. <laughs> or at least he couldn't play that style of music because it was just blues. But yeah, but, but Ron knew he wasn't very good. He even said so himself. Like He said, like, that's when I finally started learning how to play because everyone was so much better than me. Yeah. Ron is a great musician as he is. Uh, he just wasn't a bluesy guy. No, he wasn't. He wasn't a bluesy guy. And, and that's the thing, you know, speaking as a musician, like there's when you start playing with people that are so much better than you, you either give up. Or you say, I'm never going to be embarrassed like that ever again. Because it is highly, (laughs) highly embarrassing to sit down with a bunch of musicians that are so much better than you are because they're trying to be polite and they all keep looking at you like, yeah, boy, we'd be having a great time here if it wasn't for you. Like, we'd be sounding real good if it wasn't for you right now. And you're just like, I'm sorry, I'm playing as fast as I can. Is there like a seed of memory that just sprouted right now about from Marcus's brain? S- I'd say about six seeds. I'd say it's a <laughs> bit of a garden. <laughs> <laughs> now, after a few months of playing gigs with the Prime Movers, Iggy Pop dropped out of college to pursue music full time. Now, the Prime Movers were one of those bands in the mid 60s, like the Blues Project and the Paul Butterfield Blues Band, who pretty much just listened to a lot of blues and copy the style because they liked the music. But what Iggy Pop was mostly absorbing from those musicians were the actual blues artists that they listened to, like Muddy Waters, yeah. Howlin' Wolf, and John Lee Hooker. 
lonely boy, baby, looking for someone to love. feel the talent from over here <laughs> uh, no d- blues was one of the first styles of music that i got into my dad is a, a huge huge blues fan really yeah so i grew up i grew up listening to all those guys grew up listening to muddy waters john lee hooker um oh, right. dad was a big stevie ray vaughn fan naturally i mean texas gonna be a big stevie ray vaughn fan <laughs> uh but yeah fuck absolutely love john lee hooker iggy pop was huge in all these blues guys and all these dudes in like the ann arbor scene were all huge into the blues and i'm not saying that these guys and these blues were Rival bands weren't talented. I mean, hell, Paul Butterfield mentored with Muddy Waters. Muddy Waters respected him. And also, Paul B- Butterfield, he uh, he played with Bob Dylan. Yeah. Dylan saw Paul Butterfield perform at a blues festival, and he's just like, hey, you guys are all right. Come and play with me tomorrow. Not realizing that Bob Dylan was playing his Symphony of Booze tour. <laughs> So it didn't really go so great for them, but it's still really cool to play with Bob Dylan, though. It's it's super cool, man. It's so funny how much, how many uh, different collaborations came from those blues festivals. Like speaking of Stevie Ray Vaughan, uh, that's how David Bowie found Stevie Ray Vaughan. Stevie Ray Vaughan played, I think it was the Montreux Jazz Festival. Uh, David Bowie saw Stevie Ray Vaughan. He said, I want to work with that guy on my next album. And so Stevie Ray Vaughan played guitar on Let's Dance, uh, Cat People, uh, and oh shit, Not Modern Love, one more song, one more huge hit off of the album Let's Dance that I can't quite remember right now. Uh, But yeah, all kinds of shit used to come from those blues festivals but you know while some of these guys found new ways to approach the genre like other bands like the prime movers they were just kind of recycling what had come before there wasn't anything super new about it oh well you know what back then in ann arbor like what wayne kramer from the mc5 he said like if you're a white suburban kid from detroit blues bands were pretty exotic Mm -hmm. because it wouldn't come to them so often and the prime movers was so popular because they were so different to everyone else everyone else tried choreography and had steps and did instruments like the bands of that era but these guys were playing blues yeah they're playing i mean they're playing blues blues was not such a uh, a popular uh music genre as it is now like now like everybody knows the blues like because blues just kind of made its way into everything i mean thank the fucking i guess the blues brothers i guess that's <laughs> <laughs> i guess that's what brought it kind of kind of brought blues to the mainstream but yeah back then like you know blues was yeah i mean exotic is the right word for it you know it was as exotic as world music because it just was not something that was in anybody's purview at all when it came to white kids, white suburban kids from Detroit. Especially when Elizabeth Shue had to learn <laughs> the blues in the one quintessential scene of adventures and babysitting. I would argue that scene killed the blues. Like, that's when the blues ended. Uh, really? <laughs> It w- it's when it started for me. Uh, I would say I would say that's probably when it's like ah okay that's over. <laughs> back it up, back uh, it up, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> she had to sing the blues so she could leave. Well, let's hear an example from the Prime Movers, which was actually uploaded to YouTube by the former band leader. And this song features Iggy Pop on the drums. Just the same day Just for the day 
It's cool. I will never be as cool as those guys. <laughs> Neither one of us will ever be as cool as those dudes. Like it, it's cool. Like they're they it would I would imagine uh, that's like the best night I'd ever spend in a bar is going in and that band is playing. Yeah, you know, like, and that's and that's super fucking cool. Like that it is cool. Uh, but you know, and it's become kind of a cliche to say that like white musicians stole black music, specifically the blues, that they just repackaged it, uh, that they had, as Iggy Pop put it, a studious copy. Uh, and you know, I'd say that's pretty, that's very much true. (laughs) That's pretty true in the case of the prime movers and the prime movers, the, uh, leads, the guy that uploaded it to a YouTube, I think he was also the lead singer, he went on to uh, found allmusic.com, which was my favorite website for many, 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 many years. I still use that website sometimes. Yeah, all music is fucking great. But these dudes, they were just straight up playing the same exact kind of music that had been released 10, 20, 30 years earlier. Only difference was that they were doing it with just a hint of psychedelic flair. That's called LSD. <laughs> Yeah, but that's what they were doing. That they were dropping acid and playing the blues, you know, and that gave it a little bit of a twinge. It gave it a little bit of a a, a switch, but for the most part, nah, just kind of copying the style of all the guys that came before. And Iggy Pop was smart enough to notice this. So in 1966, Iggy quit the Prime Movers and moved to Chicago to find blues drummer Sam Lay, who had recorded with Hallam Wolf, John Lee Hooker, Bo Diddley and Muddy Waters, and Sam Lay had also played with Dylan at the Newport Folk Festival. Sam Lay, the most legendary musician to ever shoot himself in the scrotum. <laughs> he shot himself in the balls? Yeah. How? When Iggy got there. <laughs> I mean, not because of Iggy, for once. Not because yeah, yeah. of Iggy, but uh, it was over a fight. But, uh, he, you know, Sam Lay also played on Bob Dylan's album Highway 61 Revisited. No shit. Yeah, yeah. So they knew each other. That's fucking, I mean, this is the guy to go to. If you're Iggy Pop, this is the guy to go to. See, Iggy thought that maybe he just wasn't understanding the blues correctly, and that if he found a great blues drummer, he'd figure out what he was missing. And Iggy did end up finding Sam Lay. And Lay was impressed enough with Iggy to get him a gig playing drums with Big Walter Horton, half because Iggy was a more than competent drummer, and half because they figured having a white boy in the band would help them book white clubs. (laughs) And they were right. Well, when he did get that gig uh, playing drums for Big Walter Horton and Johnny Young, at uh, it was at a Unitarian church mm-hmm. on the way to the gig. Now, this is like a scene from like Iggy Pop's biopic. <laughs> it's got to be. So on the way to the gig, in the car, Big Walter Horton takes out his switchblade and waves it around saying, you better know how to play, white boy. <laughs> And he laughed because you have to laugh when you're, you know, holding a weapon. Oh, yeah. No, I've I've laughed plenty of times when I've had been physically threatened. (laughs) (laughs) And to which Iggy replied, 
look, man, I can do anything you can. Just give me a break. Because <laughs> he's what, 19? He, 18, 19, somewhere yes, around there? I, I mean, yeah, he is very, very young. Uh, as far as where Iggy lived during his time in Chicago, he found residence with a record store owner and local blues guru named Bob Coaster. And this is pretty much where the Iggy Pop we know began to fully emerge. So Bob Coaster, he was the founder and owner of Delmark Records, which mm-hmm. is like the oldest jazz and blues indie label in the U.S. It was re- They released dozens of records in like the 60s and 70s. And, right. You know, Bob Coaster lived a good life. He was very well respected. And he also owned the jazz record Mark store which was a place where employees and fans could crash and Iggy did as as well for a little while so Bob Coaster gave him a place to stay and Iggy decided to invite his friends over <laughs> yes Bob's like hey can I just invite like two three four friends and Bob Coaster's like sure why not you seem like a nice young man what's the worst that could happen <laughs> Oh, you're just another young boy that wants to learn how to play the blues. Of course, Mr. Pop, bring all of your chums and schoolboys over. This sounds like a wonderful time. So he brings Vivian Shevitz, who worked at the record store with Iggy before, and Scott Richardson, and Ron and Scott Ashton. Uh, So they were all staying at Coaster's Place together, and they drove Bob insane and kept goading him just for the fun of it. (laughs) Scott Richardson described it as the droogs from a clockwork orange. Yeah, I remember uh, what. They, well, the thing is that Bob uh, Coaster was gay, and so they would wrestle with each other naked in his presence, and Iggy would tuck his dick in between <laughs> his legs and go, "I'm a girl, I'm a girl." <laughs> Just absolutely all. And then the last straw finally came when. Uh, Bob Coaster was asking for a glass of water. He was very tired. He was very. He was a little sick. He yeah. asked, like, could you please bring me a glass of water? Somebody please bring me a glass of water. And Iggy brought, brought him a glass full of piss. <laughs> <laughs> he almost drank it, but he just, like, threw it at Iggy Pop and then kicked everyone out into the street. <laughs> you ruffians must get out. Please leave my presence in post haste. <laughs> <laughs> But the thing is that it seems like even though Iggy's times with Coaster were more shenanigan-based than anything, Iggy, I mean, he came to a very important and profound realization during this time in Chicago after smoking a joint on an unnamed bridge somewhere in the city. Yeah, well, actually, he he hung out by the dock near the sewage treatment plant across the Marina Towers, Ah. looking over the Chicago River. And then, you know what? He lit up a joint one of the first times he ever smoked pot, and he just looked over the river and thought, hmm, structure, lyrics, simplicity. And that's where he got his philosophical mind together. Yeah, I mean, supposedly, according to Pop, this was the first time he'd really had any experience with drugs. But, you know, as it happens with a lot of us around that age, that experience knocked something loose in Iggy's brain. He realized that he wasn't understanding the blues because he couldn't understand the blues as it was being played because Iggy Pop wasn't black. He never would be black, and we'd never understand what it was like to be black. I mean, Iggy Pop was a suburban white kid. His experiences were not only different, they were incompatible with the type of music he was trying to play at the time. But he also realized that his experiences still mattered. Just because he was white didn't mean he didn't experience pain and suffering, because everybody experiences pain and suffering, but he still wanted to express those feelings through music. 
So Pop figured that what he had to do was play his own simple version of the blues so he could translate his experiences and suffering in the same way that blues musicians used their style of music to convey theirs. Simple. Punk. That's exactly <laughs> what it is. <laughs> yeah, and when Iggy called up Ron and Scott Ashton to see if they wanted to join him, they said, why the fuck not? And what eventually came to be known as the Stooges was born. The last person to be added to the group was Dave Alexander, who'd gone to Liverpool with Ron. Dave was, in Iggy's words, a tortured kid with a bad skin problem who couldn't get fucked, but was a seriously fearless and vicious street fighter. Ah. <laughs> Perfect. Fuck! Perfect. <laughs> they all knew each other growing up. Uh, Kathy Ashton, uh, the, the Ashton sister, mm-hmm. she she saw him walking down the road one day and was like, that guy has long hair. Hey, long hair guy, come on over. And thus, a friendship was born. I mean, that's how it usually goes. I know that's how it's gone for me in the past. Like, hey, cool t-shirt. Let's hang out. Yeah. Hey, <laughs> you know, like, that's how these things go. They're all flags, you know, especially when you're a kid. It's like putting up a flag of like, hey, I like this thing. If you like this thing too, please talk to me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I became friends with this girl in college, Stacy, because she was wearing a monster magnet shirt. Yeah, there you go. I mean, it's we've all got those little things. That you like reach out and you're like, hey, that's pretty cool. Let's hang out. Well, in other words, Dave Alexander was the perfect person to play bass for the Stooges. But when Iggy returned to Ann Arbor, Iggy was met with a scene that was much more psychedelic and much more rooted in the hippie ethos than what he'd left. And this is what I particularly love about the Stooges. While everyone else in the 60s counterculture were preaching a naive version of peace, love, and harmony that ended up all being bullshit anyways, the Stooges saw the hype for what it was almost immediately. They were preaching nothing. It's a show about nothing. (laughs) And sure, the members of the Stooges wanted to make their mark on the world, but they didn't necessarily want to change it, nor were they telling anybody what to do, how to live, or what to think. All they were doing was translating what they were feeling and experiencing into music. Because if anything, the Stooges were always honest with what they were saying, and personally, that's part of why I love them so fucking much. But that's not to say the band did not partake in the drugs of the day. <laughs> it's not like they were they were like, oh, fuck this entire hippie scene. No, they were, they were into the scene, just not into the bullshit. How else would they get their drugs? <laughs> I mean, acid became their favorite drug. And during their extended group tripping sessions, they read books on the occult and they listened to music. That's how they formed what they eventually called their O-Mind. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And that's how they learned how to talk to each other. You know, a lot of the lyrics, a lot of the titles of the songs, like Real Cool Time, uh, you know, that's how they would say, like, Real Cool Time, man. It's all right. I'm all right. Yeah. (laughs) I'm all right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they sat around, they listened to Hendrix, they listened to jazz great Pharaoh Sanders, they listened to Frank Zappa and the Mother's Invention, they listened to Dr. John, cool. who's highly underrated. I love Dr. John. Like, they listened to bands and artists who were much more experimental than, you know, the garage rock and the straight blues they've been listening to before. They were expanding their minds. And don't forget Harry Parch. Of course, Harry Parch as well. Yeah, the musical theorist and uh, composer. What, how he described his music, he's like, it's not abstract, man, it's corporeal. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> and it's cool as shit. Like especially if you love ambient. You know, oh it, yeah. It's, uh, if you love, like if you love any of like Brian Eno's ambient stuff or anything like that. Like all that ambient shit's great. Like this guy, uh, Harry Parch is uh, magnifique. Oh yeah, he. Uh, they would actually play his uh, experimental records on, and then they would run around like on LSD. And Ron would stuff tissues in his cheeks and walk around all hunchback and make strange noises. <laughs> <laughs> and if girls ever came over, then he would chase after them while they screamed. And they they just they just wanted to be weird. Of course, no, they're just pushing the limits of weirdness, and that's great. Like yes. that sounds. I wish I could have been there. Like that sounds like the most fun thing to do when you're 19 is pushing the limits of weirdness. <laughs> I mean, I do that, but it was alone. We do that at home now. Now we do that at home. That's why we got married. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's listen to an example of some of this experimental music. Let's listen to a song from the Mothers of Invention album, Freak Out, which the band cites is having major rotation on their turntable at the time. Wow, that was a good outtake. What's the real song? <laughs> oh, you have no appreciation for Zappa. Oh, he's a rock. <laughs> oh, I'm a fire hydrant. <laughs> no, I, I'm a little hit and miss on Zappa as well. Like, I love Weasel's Rip My Flesh, but I, I, Zappa is the guy that I've sat down so many times in my entire life and just be like, and I listen, and I'm like, ah, fuck, I almost get it. I almost get it. <laughs> and like, every year, it's like, okay, I'm going to sit down. And I'm gonna listen to the mothers again and see if like this is the year that like I finally get it. I'm like, ah, shit. Maybe next year. Maybe next year. I mean, I, I don't know. Listen to this. Listening like I'm doing this episode. Like I feel like I at the very least get freak out now. Like I started with I got weasels rip my flesh first, and now I get freak out. Eventually, I'll just expand to the whole other. <laughs> now, that small Zappa clip that we just listened to was probably a lot closer to what the Stooges sounded like before they recorded their first album. But unfortunately, we only have descriptions of their more experimental years. We just don't know what the fuck they sounded like. We have no recordings at all of what the Stooges sounded like no. before their self-titled debut. Now, as far as the name of the band goes, remember that Ron Ashton was absolutely obsessed with the Three Stooges, among other things. <laughs> <laughs> and even though Dave Alexander was in the band, it was mostly Iggy, Ron, and Scott Ashton who hung out the most. So Ron figured that they were like the Three Stooges, man, <laughs> only like psychedelic. <laughs> I heard that they were like watching the Three Stooges on TV when they came up with that, which is a good thing that they ha didn't happen to be watching Remington Steel. And so the original name of one of the greatest rock and roll bands of all time up until the release of their first album was the Psychedelic Stooges. <laughs> it's a fucking terrible name. 
It could be worse. <laughs> it could be a lot worse. It, it definitely could be a lot worse. It could be, a, what was Radiohead's original name? On a Friday. Oh. <laughs> like, that is an awful band name. <laughs> <laughs> but the Stooges never would have gotten off the ground if not for Iggy Pop. And from the very beginning of the band... Iggy was, quote, the prime motivator, as he called it, constantly telling the others that there really was something special here. If only you guys would get up off your ass and put in the work. I know. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and so on Halloween night, 1967, the Psychedelic Stooges had their first Show. Oh, what a show it was. Oh, yes. Yeah, well, they got it all set up because uh, Ron Richardson uh, agreed to manage them. Uh, Ron Richardson, also known as the professor, mm-hmm. because he was a professor. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he, he actually did have managing experience. Like, he managed The Chosen Few, which is a band that Ron Ashton played in before mm-hmm. with Scott Richardson. And the professor also was very helpful to them because he had a van uh-huh. and he had LSD. How did he have LSD? Well, he was involved in LSD testing in the University of Michigan where <sighs> he happily supplied all the drugs to these people. He actually used <sighs> them as lab rats because he made him like read books and then they took LSD and he kind of like, you know, like a professor would kind of like study them a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> and so they had the show Ron had the show at his house outside of Ann Arbor and he took care of the guest list for the show which included John Sinclair mm-hmm. you know he's a writer and an activist the MC5 mm-hmm. Bill Kirchin from the psychedelic band Seven Seal and Jimmy Silver and his wife Nausicaa uh-huh. who we'll know we'll, we'll learn about a lot yes and so for Iggy to get ready for the show he got Jimmy Silver's wife Nausicaa to make a metallic wig by pasting strips of curled aluminum foil <laughs> into a bathing cap and then helped him put on his Victorian nightgown <laughs> that he wore for, for the first show. So Iggy got all ready and mm. then he scoured the junkyard that was right outside of Ron Richardson's house mm-hmm. and he just picked up a bunch of stuff, a bunch of junk to make his own instruments. Because remember, Harry Parch also made his own instruments so he wanted an experiment. So he put all this stuff together. He made a thing called the Osterizer. Oh man. Man, it's so cool. It is so cool. <laughs> so much fun. Yeah, it was a blender with water that you put a microphone inside. <laughs> That's not a fuck. That's just a blender. W- with a microphone inside. <laughs> That's what makes it an osterizer. <laughs> so that what they did is that they set that all up with the mic, and then they turned on the osterizer, not blender. Mm-hmm. And played it for 15 minutes for the beginning of the show. Oh, man. Just That was it, just to set the mood. And let me just tell you, like at the show when the people showed up, there was a lot of drugs. Naturally. DMT, LSD, DET, and lots and lots of weed. I couldn't imagine watching this on DMT. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) Somebody rolled a hundred joints for the party. And you know how many people attended this party? About 12 to 20. Whoa. So Iggy, but that was also back in the days when weed was not anywhere near as strong as it is now. Yeah, we got better at drugs. Yeah. <laughs> or worse. I miss <laughs> I miss old dirt weed. I miss high school weed. I miss when I could, you know, smoke a joint and just like have a day. You know, like, <laughs> like I miss that. Yeah. So Iggy, he had a, his other instrument. He had his Hawaiian guitar that were all tuned to the, all the strings were tuned to note of E. Mm-hmm. So it sounded like an airplane when he played it. Oh, it's so, man, it's so much fun. 
And so he sat on the floor cross-legged, right there, right in the middle, right after the Osterizer stopped playing. And Scott beat on these, like, barrel, like, 55-gallon oil cans with, like, some sort of hammer parade beaters. And he was just beating like crazy. And uh, meanwhile, like, Dave, who wasn't in the band yet because it was just the Three Stooges at the time, Mm -hmm. he would twirl, like, the amp dials and, like, he would smash, like, Ron's amp to make a loud, booming, echoing sound while the band played. So they played, it's not music, just a bunch of noises, but it made sense to them. Well, you know, I mean, noise, music, yeah, art, yeah. <laughs> well, Iggy shuffled on a washboard uh, with contact mics on it in his golf shoes. Uh, so it's a, it's a soundscape. Yeah, yeah. The music, was, they called a very North African tribal jazz gone wild. They'd get high, they would play for 10 minutes, and then they would get high again, and then Iggy would get on there and play the organ. Ron, the, he was playing the guitar. They kept blowing fuses throughout the whole party. Oh. Yeah, like while they were playing their music, and by the time they blew the last fuse, the set was done, and they looked up, and almost everyone laughed. <laughs> Except John Sinclair. He thought they were pretty good. Yeah, of course. Man, I wonder how much of that is actually true. I have no idea. <laughs> like, I wonder how like how many different how many different people do they have to talk to before they finally put together, like, okay, this is what we think probably happened at this show. We read six books to find out. <laughs> and what we found out is that a lot of people are too high to remember things that happened 50 years ago. <laughs> But as absolutely fucking bizarre and weird as that show was, it still caught the attention of, as you said, John Sinclair. And John Sinclair was the manager of the hottest band in Detroit, the MC5. MC5 have a fascinating story all their own that runs almost concurrent with the Stooges. But what the MC5 are best known for is being the only band to show up to actually play the 1968 Democratic National Convention in Chicago. For a quick refresher, the 1968 DNC ended with police moving in on a crowd of demonstrators and just beating the piss out of anyone in swinging distance. And the MC5 were about five songs into their set when it all went down. What a great soundtrack <laughs> to police brutality. Extreme police, but I mean, go check it out on online. Like you it's know, on it, YouTube. It's right? a, yeah, of course, it's all on YouTube. But yeah, it's fucking insane to watch this shit. Now, although the MC5 were known as being a political band, you know, because they were closely attached to the White Panther Party. Well, that's because the Black Panther Party did not like them. No. No. But <laughs> So they're like, we'll just make the White Panther Party. <laughs> but they didn't want 
any part of what was happening in Chicago. And they were just really excited for the gig. I mean, it wasn't necessarily like, man, we're going to go there and we're going to show these pigs what's up. They're like, no, we're going to go there. We're going to play some fucking rock and roll music because we're a rock and roll band. In fact, it wouldn't be totally unfair to say that the MC5 were, on some level, they're fucking hustlers. I mean, they saw money in the hippie scene, and they capitalized on an opportunity which became painfully obvious when they signed to RCA and spent all their money on bitchin' cars. Oh, yeah, but it's bitchin' cars. <laughs> yeah, they're bitchin' cars, of course, but... I know. Uh, well, they had a three-point political program. That's what Wayne Kramer called it. <laughs> His three-point political program was rock and roll, drugs, and women. <laughs> I mean, they were into it, you know, like, yeah. you know, of course, Fred Sonic Smith, you know, went on to marry Patty Smith and they were very much in the very much in love and very much in a politic because Patty Smith is very politically active as well. But th- back then, the MC5 it, during this time, they were not. No, they were not like focused on politics. Well, the thing is, is like they had a lot of connections with these activists and it just gave them more uh, a chance for more gigs, which yeah. is what they wanted. But then eventually the movement like kind of took over the band. Yeah. And the thing is that there were people, you know, we talk a lot of shit about the hippies. You know what I was saying about earlier about it being like mostly bullshit. Uh, you know, like a lot of people for a lot of people, it was mostly bullshit. But there were also during this time, like very intense people in the activist scene like there were uh, terrorist bombings back then like you know the weather underground like uh, abby hoffman like there were people that were fucking serious yes very very serious <laughs> about shit and the mc5 had that kind of tone like they were because they had they were playing rock and fucking music because these people were serious and they were angry and the mc5 really matched that well uh but the mc5 didn't really have the ethos to back it up. Well, we found that out when the MC5 played the Fillmore East mm-hmm. in New York City. Yeah, uh, they fucked up real bad. They were billed as <laughs> the people's band. <laughs> the band of the movement, right? Yeah. And so Danny Fields, who we will talk about a lot, mm-hmm. uh, he booked a limo to get the band downtown because they realized, like, how do we get this everyone in there? So he's like... Let's just get him a limo. Yeah, that's here in New York City, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So the band comes in in a stretch limo <laughs> to the movement. The, the people's band. Because, uh, and outside is like 500 people from the movement. And they were they were this big activist group. They were called uh, the motherfuckers. <laughs> the East Village motherfuckers. Serious people. Very radical. Uh, part of the community. And they see this limo and they start yelling and throwing shit and calling them traitors. It's <laughs> like, sell! <laughs> Meanwhile, Rob Tyner from the MC5. Rob Tyner is like, okay, all right, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk to them. I got it, it, man. I got it. Dude, I got it. I know exactly what to say. So he gets up. (laughs) I hope it's from the moonroof. I'm not sure. (laughs) He gets up and he goes, hey, we didn't come here to play New York for politics. We came to New York to play rock and roll. Fuck you! It did not work out well for them. The place just erupted into a riot. And Bill Graham, the venue promoter of the Fillmore East, he banned the MC5 from then on, uh, thinking that Rob Tyner broke his nose through the riot, uh, during the riot. That's a Fillmore East 
and the Fillmore West, <sighs> which were two of the biggest music venues in the entire country back then. Right. You know, some of the big, some of the best rock and roll shows ever played were done at either the Fillmore East or the Fillmore West. And man, it's just, it's we're going to see again and again. It's like, how many beginnings of the end does MC5 have? Like six? I know. <laughs> <laughs> They're just, the, they are the most tragic also ran band of the entire late 60s, early 70s. I know, it's a shame because they were so good. So fucking good. But like, even Iggy Pop said that he didn't feel any sort of real political feeling from the MC5. He said, on a basic level, would they share their peanut butter with me? Yeah, and their girlfriends would sew my pants. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was a shitty thing about the MC5. The, the, the MC5 were intense misogynists, but a lot of those fucking hippie people were. Yeah, but they treated the women like servants. Like They yeah. were there to serve them, to make them food, to wash their clothes, to have sex with them. Yeah. And if they didn't want to have sex, then they would just... Just like to just be so condescending and be like, oh, you're so bourgeois. Yeah. I can't believe you won't do this for the movement, which is a very shitty thing to do, which I'm glad that Wayne Kramer has now owned up to that. All of the MC5 owned up to yes. that. Like they, they all owned up to like, yeah, we were fucking awful back then. But a lot of those fucking hippie, uh, hippie communes and all that type of all that shit. Like it was very, very misogynist. It was fucking awful. It's, it's all romanticized. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us how you really feel. I got a lot of problems with hippies. <laughs> <laughs> but regardless, the Psychedelic Stooges became like a little brother band to the MC5. Because John Sinclair saw the Psychedelic Stooges and figured, all right, these guys are taking the European avant-garde scene and they're turning it into something that the kids are going to like. And that's extremely insightful on the part of John Sinclair. And John Sinclair tried getting the Stooges to cop to the MC5 style. He told Pop, he's like, man, you got to get with the people. You got to get with the people. But Pop said, quote, Oh, the people, oh. give me a break. The people don't give a fuck. No, they don't. <laughs> and he's right. <laughs> <laughs> people don't give a fuck. The people. <laughs> the people. <laughs> the thing was, Iggy Pop still wasn't even really singing at this point. It wasn't until... Oh, his blender was working. His, the, the Osterizer was making a lot of fucking noise. <laughs> it wasn't until Pop saw the doors near the end of 1967 that he realized he could be a singer too. This is the end, beautiful friend. This is the end, my only friend, the end. Of our elaborate plans, the end of everything that stands, the end. No safety or surprise, the end. I'll never look into your eyes again. Can you picture what will be so limitless and free, desperately in need of some stranger's hand in a
That song is so good, it gave Martin Sheen a heart attack. <laughs> I mean, From re- Apocalypse Now. Yeah, of course, of course. I like listening to The Doors again. Like That's something you're going to hear me say a ton throughout the course of this entire uh, show. It's like listening to The Doors like, oh man, like Iggy Pop really took a lot of his vocal styles from Jim Morrison. He, I mean, did it a billion times better uh but (laughs) but jim morrison had that like that charm that that sex appeal that you know eventually robert plant bestowed upon himself yes yeah i mean but jim morrison was uh you know not even close to the songwriter that iggy pop is not even close to the fucking singer that iggy pop is but have you read his poetry yeah Uh, yeah i even knew in high school that it sucked he tried yeah he tried real hard But, you know, Iggy's experiencing Jim Morrison sing wasn't quite the same kind of inspirational moment Iggy had while he was watching Dylan. Instead, Iggy was inspired by how fucking terrible Jim Morrison was. (laughs) I mean, from what Iggy said, Jim Morrison was tragically drunk and the band sounded like, in Iggy's words, old pussy. That's not a sound. Yeah, it is. Okay. (laughs) You know exactly what it sounds like. (laughs) What is that supposed to mean? (laughs) It's evocative. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Well, when Morrison did manage to get it together enough to sing, he did it in a high-pitched Betty Boop falsetto voice. (laughs) And, of course, the audience fucking hated it. But they were also mesmerized. They couldn't stop watching it. And this this was when The Doors had the number one song in the country. This was when Light My Fire exploded. And everyone's yelling, Light My Fire, Light My Fire. And Morrison just kept doing the Betty Boop voice. And Light My Fire. And he's just, fuck you. And he'd start singing normally for just a little bit. And everyone would start clapping. And then right when everybody got comfortable again, he'd go back to the Betty Boop voice. And Iggy was absolutely inspired. I heard that's how Michael Buble started. <laughs> he was a wedding singer. And some executive just saw him like, be like wow. Boop, 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 boop. <laughs> Well, Pop later said that he thought, look how awful they are. And they've got the number one single in the country. (laughs) If this guy can do it, I can do it. Well, Iggy could sing. I mean, he he does have a good singing voice. He's a crooner. He can can croon like a motherfucker. Right, exactly. Well, it was around this time that the Stooges actually got a manager. Jimmy Silver came in. Before that, they were, quote-unquote, managed by Ron Richardson, who was more than happy to be relieved of the burden of the Psychedelic Stooges. Yeah, Ron Richardson didn't last very long. Even uh, after the Halloween party and just after dealing with Iggy and the rest of the Stooges, I remember reading, he said, like, okay, so I got this buddy, Jimmy. Uh, He's like, hi, how's it going? (laughs) He was at your Halloween show. All right, he's going to be your new manager. And their guys were like, "Uh, what about the van? You can keep the van! (laughs) And he just ran away, just like jumped over a corn stalk and never see it again. Uh, I could imagine you want to get rid of him. Yeah. I would yeah. imagine it'd just be difficult. Just getting him from point A to point B. Quite but, difficult. But Jimmy Silver was all about it. He was actually in grad school at the time at, at University of Michigan. He was getting his uh, doctorate at the School of Public Health. Oh. Well... Jimmy started booking the guys' local gigs, and he put them all on a macrobiotic diet. Public health. Public health. And Silver was the guy who moved the entire band into what came to be known as the Funhouse. Woo! 
the fun house. Yeah. Well, it had a lot of names. Like, uh, it was called Stooge Hall, Loon Hotel, and the Old Bear's House. Oh, the Old Bear's House. You don't want to go up... Never. Do <laughs> <laughs> your friend win. You don't want to go up that road. That's where the Old Bear lives. <laughs> <laughs> They called it that because uh, Mr. Bayless, who was the f- uh, he was a farmer who built the fun house, or before it was the fun house, mm-hmm. he built it with his own bare hands. Oh. He had this whole farm going on, but he uh, he he rented out to these guys because he knew the whole place was going to be bulldozed anyways to make way for a highway. Yeah, I think it was about two years away from being bulldozed. Yeah, so the house, the fun house, for the time being, was full of the Stooges. Jimmy Silver's family, you know, his wife Susan and his little baby daughter Rachel, they lived in a separate apartment in the house. With And then Ron, Scott, and Dave also lived in their own living quarters. And Ron with his own little uh, living area filled to the brim with Nazi paraphernalia. Well... That's his prerogative. <laughs> and Iggy in the attic. Oh, that's all nice. All by himself. That's nice. You know, what really pushed the Psychedelic Stooges to the next level was their professional debut at the Grandy Ballroom on January 20th, 1968. And that was the first show that actually featured Iggy Pop as the front man. That's right, because he had his uh, Hawaiian guitar mm-hmm. that he was going to play. Dave... Really high on acid. Yeah. So it's like, hey, dude, let me uh, let me paint your guitar. It'd be really cool. It'd be real <laughs> psychedelic. So Iggy's like, yeah, go ahead. I know you're totally on acid, but that's fine. And Dave like painted like day glow paint all over the guitar, even including the pickups, uh. which rendered the guitar unusable. Mm. So he had to just put that Hawaiian guitar alone, and then that's where he was there with no ostracizer, no experimental instruments in his hand, and that's when he got to be... Iggy Pop. Oh, that's so fucking cool. Oh, so their show on January 20th, which, by the way, is very close to your birthday. It's one day after. Yeah. (laughs) The venue was at the Grandy Ballroom, where this venue was a big stop for big musicians. Well, yeah, Detroit's like right in the middle between New York and L.A. Exactly. So it was an easy way for big acts like, you know, Led Zeppelin and Janis Joplin to stop halfway through the country that had this venue that held 2,000 people because all over the country at that time they just had like little spots like of like 100, 200 people that could hold and as you know you go on tour all the time Marcus sometimes it's hard for a big band to go and play really really small hole in the walls it's very difficult I mean it's just it's expensive to travel around you know like it costs money to get from place to place to place it costs money for travel it costs money for uh, hotels and like especially like if you're in a big band uh, it's I mean that's what you're talking about six seven people uh, on the road and that's going to be insane to go and and try to pay for six seven people to travel to a small town uh, to play for a hundred people which is so great that the Grandia Ballroom opened in 1966 so they could stop there in the Midwest and also go around because you you have Chicago, mm-hmm. you have Minneapolis, and big names like Cream, Frank Zappa, The Who, Grateful Dead, like a lot more. And the owner was uh, Russ Gibb who booked all the main acts. And I don't know if you know this, but he was kind of famous for part of the whole uh, Paul is Dead conspiracy. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because he had a radio show and he kind of added to that. That's like his number two famous thing. Oh, that's awesome. (laughs) So Russ Gibb actually auditioned the Stooges before they got to play. Mm -hmm. So he all he says that he remembers is that he just saw this skinny guy with no shirt on Mm -hmm. just dragging a toilet onto the (laughs) stage (laughs) and playing a little bit. And Ross is like, 
all right, man, you're on. Per- <laughs> you're on. Perfect. Because they needed a lot of local supporting acts to, to support these big bands. Uh, you know, like the MC5, like Frost, like Amboy Dukes, mm-hmm. and SRC Scott Richard Case. Mm-hmm. So this was their, this is the Stooges' first professional gig at the Grandy Ballroom. They supported Apple Pie Motherhood and Scott Richard Case, you know, the SRC. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were filling in for the Amboy Dukes. Uh, and of course, the Amboy Dukes, that would be Ted Nugent's first band. And even though Ted Nugent is <sighs> fucking awful, yes. Journey to the Center of the Mind is such a good fucking song. If you say so. They're fucking amazing. All right. Agree to disagree on this one? I totally agree to disagree. <laughs> all right, all right. <laughs> so the show, January 20th. Just because it's Ted Nugent doesn't mean it's bad. No, 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 no. Just the music. <laughs> all right. January 20th, right? Grandy Ballroom. Big show. Uh, and This is the first time that they're playing as a foursome now. Dave playing bass, Ron at guitar, Scott on drums, and Iggy as a frontman, as you said. Mm-hmm. And uh, Iggy, of course, wearing a Victorian nightgown again with white makeup on. <laughs> on his All over his face with the metallic wig on top of his head. Yeah. And he shaved his eyebrows just to make the white makeup like look really, really good. That's but a he, bad idea. He used grease paint. Yeah. <laughs> and then he found out why you need eyebrows. Oh, man. Uh, I used to do grease paint all the time, like for every single show for many, many, many years. Uh, And just the sweat getting in your eyes, like from the grease paint around my own eyes was bad enough. But when you've got forehead sweat pouring in mixed with grease paint, oh, it's got to be fucking awful. That's why you need eyebrows. (laughs) Because within minutes of the show starting, his eyes were so swollen and so red. (laughs) And um, this is a quote uh, from uh, Iggy uh, about the show. <clears throat> I don't remember anything about that gig. <laughs> but some do. Some do. And that's how we know about this. Actually, there was a review of the show. Someone, this guy, Steve Silverman, wrote a review in his college paper. He said the Stooges were visually the most exciting thing at the Grandy. He wore white silk pajamas and a two-foot-high wig of curled aluminum. <laughs> The band with Iggy on the vacuum cleaner was the most imaginative music of the evening. Unfortunately, the performance was marred by equipment difficulties. (laughs) Visually exciting. Imaginative music. (laughs) (laughs) Equipment difficulties. Because, as you know, they blew a lot of fuses. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's like the... That's the... 
review equivalent of bless their heart for trying. Exactly. Because, <laughs> you know, they need to turn it all the way up. Mm-hmm. Well, the Stooges played the Grandy Ballroom 22 times in 1968 alone. They opened for Sly and the Family Stone, Cream, the Mothers of Invention, and another spiritual brother to the Stooges out of New York City, the Fugs. Who can kill a general in his bed? Overthrow dictators if they're red. Fucking Who can buy a government so cheap? Change a cabinet without a squeak. Fucking amen. CIA man. Who can train gorillas by the dozens? Send them out to kill their untrained. But of course, some of those shows were absolute fucking disasters. And one of the worst, but also one of the most formative, happened on Iggy's 21st birthday. See, both Iggy and Ron Ashton had taken acid that day. Now, Ron had a fucking fantastic trip. His trip was so good that he swore off acid forever afterward because he knew that... He would never have a trip that good ever again. He's like, it's not worth it. That was the best. Exam- <laughs> like, not worth it. It's like, so he never did acid for the rest of his fucking life. I totally get that. Oh yeah. Now for Ron, that was the day that the album, The Notorious Bird Brothers, shared all of its secrets. It's nothing so much fun as taking a bunch of drugs and having an album open up itself to you. You know, like <laughs> or a shower. <laughs> well, particularly the song that opened up to Ron was Tribal gathering and if you listen to that solo it is an obvious influence on ron's guitar style I could totally hear that. Yeah. Yeah. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. And the way the the guitar goes up and down, it just, yeah, it's like the, dun, dun. it's, it's like he took that one little clip and formed a whole fucking album around it. Right. You know, it's amazing. And he had an amazing day. It sounds like the coolest day ever. Well, Iggy, <laughs> yeah, Iggy I mean, on the other hand. Well, no, Ron, like, you know, he was hanging out with a pretty girl. They're flying kites. He later lost his virginity to that girl. And they're just listening to the notorious Bird Brothers, just having a great time. Uh, but, yeah, Iggy. It didn't work out so well. Bad day for Iggy. Yeah, because they had a show at the Grandy again, uh, opening for the James Gang. And he, uh, <laughs> Iggy dropped two hits of Owsley Orange Sunshine. Orange Sunshine? Orange fucking, that's what the Manson family took. That's what everyone took. <laughs> But that was specifically the we even talk about it in the live show that we're touring right now is that you know the Manson family like Tex Watson said that it wasn't until they started taking Orange Sunshine that Helter Skelter started making sense. <laughs> Iggy also had a bad day. Oh. <laughs> 
<laughs> so he drops these two hits and he goes on stage to perform. The problem was their amps were reduced, like down because of some sort of connection issues. So instead of a loud rocking sound, mm-hmm. uh, it was just a soft murmur. It's like limp dick. Like, <laughs> so the band had to like stop to get like the you know the amps back on. People started getting restless. It was like a little while. They started chanting, "We want creep! We want creep!" <laughs> and Iggy, really stoned, just gets up on the like one of the barrels that uh, they were uh, that Scott was playing against. Uh, uh-huh. He stands on top and he goes, "Fuck you! <laughs> you don't like creep canceled." <laughs> Cream did cancel. Yeah, Cream had canceled. Yeah, but he is, I mean, on some powerful, powerful fucking acid. I mean, it's it was, I mean, Orange Sunshine was the most powerful acid of the day. Because you got to remember, like, think about, for those of you out there who've taken acid, or even mushrooms, but specifically acid. Yes. Like, like think about having 2,000 people all yelling, fuck you. 2,000 people hating you all at the same time. And you've got on a white maternity dress, you know, (laughs) cute, like aluminum foil coming out of your head. Your face is painted white. You've got no eyebrows. And there are 2,000 people all fucking screaming and yelling at you. And you're absorbing every single second of it. I get weirded out if a cat looks at me weird. <laughs> yeah. Imagine that. Imagine that. Jesus. So the show finally ends after they get the amps going on, but they just could not get it going. Like yeah. the show just sucked. So Iggy goes back with Dave to Dave's house. Dave's mom served him a cheeseburger with a candle on it. It was Aww. one of those like happy birthday, Iggy. Oh. It was a really sad <laughs> and to a horrible birthday. And that was like the moment where Iggy thought like if I were to give up, it would be right now. Yeah. But he had to keep going. Yeah. And cause that's the thing is that Iggy had hit upon something there. Even though it was a bad trip, he found that the hostility of the audience was energizing and inspiring. And the more hostile they were, the more Iggy reflected the feeling back towards the crowd. And the more they reflected back to him, the more they, I mean, it just became two mirrors staring at each other and just going into an infinity of hatred and bad feelings. Just like Tony Clifton. <laughs> <laughs> and Iggy was also starting to figure out his look. Now, if there's one thing you know about Iggy Pop, it's that he's so well known for performing shirtless that I've seen memes about he actually looks kind of weird when he's wearing a shirt. <laughs> I know. Because <laughs> he kind of does, especially when he's wearing a button-up shirt like all those Gucci ads that he's doing right now. It's like, huh. Well, why are you selling shirts, man? <laughs> You're the last person I'm going to buy a shirt from. <laughs> well, Iggy got the idea, he says, from reading a book on ancient Egypt. He said that he noticed that none of the pharaohs wore a shirt. They're in the desert. (laughs) He's in the Midwest. Yeah, but they still look pretty cool. Oh, yeah. So Iggy thought he'd do the same. Another of Iggy's trademarks is the way that he moves on stage. If you've never seen a Stooges performance from back in the 70s, do yourself a favor. Go on YouTube and check them out. Because, like, Iggy is one of the best frontmans to ever take the stage. He contorts. He cavorts. He dives. He bends backwards to the point where it looks like he's going to fucking snap in two. But every once in a while, shit went wrong. <laughs> Shit did not go well for Iggy Pop all the time because it was because in, it's intensely reckless. 
Oh yeah, no, there was a one show uh, where he uh, he and the band went up. Iggy got up to sing. He grabs the microphone. It's not working, so he just throws it on the ground, starts dancing, mm-hmm. and then one of the roadies just picks it up and turns on the on switch. <laughs> Hands it back to him. Oh, okay. Oh, got it, got it. During one show, he bent backwards, his zipper split, and his cock popped out of his pants. Well, there were PVC pants. (laughs) There were very, very tight pants. Yeah, and she said he just didn't phase him. He just left it out and started writhing on the ground, quote, like a tortured worm or a cavorting cat. Eventually, the pants slid off him, which is, this is my favorite part. He goes backstage. He finds like a little towel. He goes back up. And with the towel, he does like a strip tease, like a little peekaboo with his penis. <laughs> and just as he was thinking to himself that he's going to get away with all of this, <laughs> the cops bust through the door and bust the whole place because they'd heard that there was some sort of illegal homosexual strip club operating. Well, you know, to be honest, what could be more gay strip clubby than a bunch of men in policemen uniforms just <laughs> busting onto the stage? <laughs> So Iggy was arrested and his dad bailed him out for the first time, paying a fine of $41. And and $9. (laughs) (laughs) For fees. For fees, yes. And of course his dad did it with a smile because James Osterberg Sr. surprisingly seemed to be tickled pink by his son's antics. Son, we're going to the Dairy Queen. (laughs) (laughs) But because of those antics, people started showing up just to see what Iggy Pop would do, whether they liked the music or not, although there were plenty of people who were into the Stooges' sound. But some showed up just to abuse and antagonize Iggy, and the more aggression the Stooges received, the darker they became. And it was in this environment that Danny Fields from Electra Records showed up in Detroit. And that's where we'll pick back up for part two of The Stooges. Oh, I'm so excited. I'm so excited for part two. Now, this is going to be a four-part series. Oh, so, yeah. Yeah, so we've got a lot more to talk about. We've got all four albums to talk about, plus the two Iggy Pop solo records uh, that everybody knows and love his first two. And we're going to talk about some of the other ones as well. But, you know, of course, yeah, The Idiot and Lust for Life, that's the one. Those are the ones. Those are the <laughs> albums. <laughs> you know, like, and we're going to be talking about Iggy and uh, David Bowie's time together. And all the nitty-gritty, the cocaine, the heroin, every. Oh, every Everything that just went wrong. Yeah. And plus, three of the best albums ever recorded. That's true. All right. Well, we will uh, be back next week with part two of the Stooges. Thank you all very much for listening to the first episode of No Dogs in Space. And remember, if you dug any of the music that you listened to uh, today, you can go over to my uh, Spotify profile. I'll have everything on a playlist there. Uh, So hopefully you can uh, discover something new and discover it because that's also a big part of what this show's about. Absolutely. Goodbye. She'll hand you a stick of sandalwood, a little smile, and then she disappears back into a crowd of happy people looking like they never came from this strange thing gathered in a cat. Strange thing gathered in a cat. A Macedonian pilot comes to laugh and laughing at a just a joke, friend the motorcycle angel comes to sit and talk a while and share a smoke.
Just goes a dancing light Caught up in the sound of dark and drums Lost herself out in the weed and sky This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com.